rich. I know that as we've gone through Job, it seems like it's, uh, you know, going through this, but it's been so beneficial to really look at this book, and I hope that you've been tremendously blessed. As Father, we do want to just right now continue in this wonderful book. It's a, a sobering book that we look at suffering, and we look at trials, and, and uh, we don't get the answer of why, but we do find comfort and hope, and we find that you are still in the midst of our lives working. And Lord, that's what Job is going to understand, and that we can entrust you with our lives. And Lord, what I pray is that tonight, that we're just not reading chapters, but we're really applying it, and you're touching our hearts. Because all of us will go through the trials and difficulties of life to one degree or another. We don't always understand why, but we can fall back into things that we do understand. And that is, as we study your word, that you give us truth here, that we can, Lord, just uh, be established in, uh, to help us grow in our faith, and knowing that you are working, refining us, and growing us, and maturing us during those times, that you may be glorified. So, Lord, we thank you and, um, for this time. And I just pray that you bless every heart that is here. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things of going through Job is, is that um, we do know that in this world that we go through sufferings, we go through difficulties, we go through trials. And not everybody goes through certain degrees of, of, of trials that perhaps that you do. It's, it's different for everybody. Some people go through life and it seems like they um, don't have a whole lot of uh, difficulties or trials that they go through, but we all go through them to one degree or another. Sometimes we can look at circumstances and we can see people and even Christians that go through tremendous trials and tremendous loss and we don't always understand it. And I pray that as we've gone through the book of Job that, that Job has gone through tremendous loss, hasn't he? Uh, he's gone through uh, the loss of his children and his servants and all his possessions and he's been afflicted physically and he's hurting and he's in the ash heap and one of the things that I pray that we can learn is how to be able to minister to those who are hurting and going through affliction. And, and I, I pray that you've gained from that going through this because we've seen that for 29 chapters, from chapters 3 to 31, that Job was conversing with his three friends. Um, and they were uh, exchanging um, counseling, you know, and uh, words of uh, given to Job and Job was maintaining his integrity because it was Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar that were accusing Job of sin, as we saw very clearly. They dug in their heels. They said, Job, you must have done some sin. Uh, you must have, uh, have done some iniquity for this to happen, and you need to repent and turn to God and confess it, and then he'll begin to heal and begin to restore you. And it hurt Job because even though they were accusing him of sin, they were saying things that were not characteristic of his life. Job, you were uh, dependent on your wealth. You didn't help those who were in need. Uh, you were arrogant. It wasn't true in Job's life of those things because we know that God said concerning Job that he was one that was upright, he was blameless, he feared God and shunned evil. So we know from the book of Job that it is even those who um, are living for the Lord and surrender to the Lord that will go through trials, just as Jesus said that it rains on the just and the unjust. And so Job is trying to understand. He wants to be vindicated by God. Uh, he doesn't understand everything that is going on in his life at this time. So all this conversation is taking place, and it hasn't helped Job. And my prayer for us is that as we minister to others uh, that are going through whatever suffering or grief or difficulty, that we would be ones that bring true comfort to them, that we wouldn't be known as miserable comforters as these three were known in chapter 16. And now as we're in this section in chapter 34, we know that that exchange between Job and his three friends have ended. It was quiet, and all of a sudden, there's one that's in the midst of the ash heap that's been watching and, and listening, and it's a young guy. Elihu is his name, and he speaks up, and for six chapters here, he gives this long discourse. We looked at two of those chapters last week in chapter 32 and 33, 
And he's one that's young. He is one that is very wordy. And he's also one that is very arrogant. He says that you need to listen to me over and over and over again. And we have, are going to see that he's going to continue. You need to listen to me. Learn from me. He has rebuked Job's three friends that were with him for not being able to really uh, come up and prove their charges against Job. And so he rebukes them very harshly. But what we're going to see, that even though Elihu says that, Job, you're going to benefit from my counsel given to you. He was like a, he said, a, 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 you know, ready to burst, you know, uh, a wineskin that's ready to burst. And, and he's waited, and, and you need to listen to me, and I'm going to bring you great wisdom. And he, for a chapter and a half, continued to say that as he's just kind of boasting in himself. And, and he then rebukes those three friends, and he says, Job, I'm not going to be harsh to you. You might recall that he said that in chapter 32, that this is going to benefit you. And then in chapter 33, after he again says, listen to me and understand me and, and, and know that I give words of wisdom, uh, I'm now going to open my mouth. He talks a little bit about God's grace, and, and then he starts to get a little bit harsher. And, and as we get into chapter 34, we're going to see that Elihu, as I read it, that his tone gets very harsh. And I think partly he gets harsh is because of his arrogance. He is one that seems to be that um, is, you know, lifting himself up. He will magnify the Lord. He will exalt the Lord. But he's lifting himself up as one to be listened to. And then he really begins to be hard on uh, Job, even in a more harsh way than the other three guys were. And that's what we're going to begin to look at here tonight. So chapter 34, that we read that Elihu uh, further answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. And let us choose justice for ourselves and let us know among ourselves what is good. So again, he puffs himself up, doesn't he? Uh, he began this discourse in chapter 32 by saying, hear my words, you, you guys, and, and you who have knowledge, and you guys use discernment as you taste my words. So he continues to say that. He ended chapter 33, you know, by saying, listen to me, hold your peace, and I'll teach you wisdom, and the words that I have to speak taste good to you. Now, here's what you and I need to remember as Christians, that if, if we're ones that think, you know, you listen to me and this is going to be good for you, the only way that it's going to taste good to them truly is if we give them God's word. And we know that in the book of Hebrews, that the word of God, that we're told by the author there that we're to take in the meat of God's word, that we take in God's word, we digest it. Uh, Revelation chapter 10 talks about how it was John who ate that scroll, God's word, and it was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. The book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel did the same thing. He ate of a scroll, God's word, and it was sweet in his mouth. And of course, David would write in Psalm chapter 19 concerning the word of God that is sweeter than honey in a honeycomb. So we want to give people the bread of the word, the meat of the word. We want to give them God's word, and that's where it's going to taste good in their mouth. And also, as we give God's word, to give it in the right application. You see, these guys here, even though we're going to see that the three friends of Job are going to be rebuked by God, they would give some truth. They would talk about how mighty God is and that God does punish the, the sinner and, and that he blesses those who are, are righteous. But he gives the wrong implication in that. And the implication was, Job, you are a sinner, and God is punishing you, and God is upset with you. And we're going to see here that Elihu is going to basically say the same thing. He's just going to come at it at a different angle. And matter of fact, he is going to get really um, one that's going to just kind of let Job have it. So we see here that it's Elihu that's saying, okay, listen to me, learn from me, it'll be tasteful, you'll enjoy it. And then he's going to list and talk about two complaints that Job, you know, uh, had during his address to his three friends. Verses 5 and 6, For Job has said, I am righteous, but God take away my justice. Should I lie concerning uh, should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. So the first complaint that Job had that you might remember in the previous chapters is that God is unjust. 
And we're going to see that in verses 10 through 37 of this chapter, that it is Elihu that's going to address that complaint of Job. Job, you remember, had said that uh, as he wanted to be vindicated by the Lord, that he said that the Lord is, is throwing arrows at him, that, that God is not listening to me, that he's just out to get me. So the rest of the chapter here, starting in verse 10, he, Elihu's going to address that complaint. And then in verses 7 through 9, the second complaint of Job, what is man is like Job who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. For he has said it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. And so in these verses, we will see that Elihu will address that complaint of Job in chapter 35. You re might recall that it was Job that said, there's no profit in serving God. I'm fearful of letting you know, myself be in God's hands. So that's what Elihu will uh, address in the next chapter. So let's begin to look at the first charge that Elihu is going to address is it was Job that said that um, God is unjust in verse 10. As we read, therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Yes, we know. You've said that already, you know, a dozen times, Elihu. Let's get on with it. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth or who appointed him over the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So Elihu declares that it's unthinkable that God would do wrong and that he is unjust. We know that God is perfectly just, he is perfectly righteous, and he, he does everything um, that is righteous and true and just. It is in Genesis chapter 18 that you might recall that Abraham would say, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? A rhetorical question. And of course, the answer is yes, of course he does what is right. He is totally righteous and true in his decisions and in his judgments. God is God. Uh, let every man be a liar. Let God be true, as the scripture says. He is perfect. And if he is perfect, then he cannot do wrong. And he explains that God gives us the very breath that we breathe and holds us together. We know that Jesus in John's gospel, you recall, that Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they are in my hands, they're in the Father's hands, and no one will pluck them out. Now we know that in chapter 35, it is going to be the second complaint of Job saying, hey, uh, I, I don't want to be submitted to God. It, that's a scary thing for me because look what has happened to me. And again, that Job and his complaints against the Lord, even though they were wrong, that he's sharing his emotions. They were very, you know, real emotions. He's confused. And we're going to see that God's going to come along and correct him at the end of the book. And Job's going to realize that. But here is, you know, um, you know, Elihu that's saying that, that he uses the very breath that we breathe and holds us together. And that's what the Bible says for you and for me. Not only are we in his hands, but I'm reminded of Colossians chapter 1, that when Paul is writing to that church about the deity of Jesus, that all things were created by him and, and through him, and that he holds all things together. So he is the creator of all things, and he holds all things together. I mean, he holds the whole universe together. Scientists don't know what holds the universe together. There's order in, in the universe. And, and when you look at the atom and, you know, like charges that are spinning in, in an atom, why doesn't it repel? Why doesn't it just explode? And scientists don't quite understand it. They have very complicated theories and things like that. Well, it's really very simple. Jesus, he holds it all together, right? All things consist by him. He's holding it all together, and one day he's going to let it go. And as Peter says in his epistle, that the whole universe is going to go up in a fervent heat, that it's going to dissolve in a great explosion, greater than any Fourth of July you know, firework display that you'll ever see. We get to see that. We get to witness that as believers because that's going to take place at the end of the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. The heavens and earth, as we now know, will dissolve in a 
fervent heat and will, you know, just explode as Jesus lets it go. And then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't that going to be wonderful? That's our future, folks. And so we're in his hands and he holds us together as Christians. There's only one thing that he does not hold together. And that is the heart that says, I don't want you to, Lord. I don't want you in my life. I don't want you to reign supreme over my life. I don't want you to, to rule over my life. Because he won't force his way into anyone's heart. And we know that the person that says that, that the Lord, he'll keep prompting them. The Holy Spirit will keep convicting them. But you see, he has preeminence, preeminence over everything except for the heart that rejects him. And you and I as Christians, we want to be careful that we don't take an area of our lives and we say, Lord, that I will take that and I will take care of it. And we're now allowing the Lord to rule supreme over that one area of our lives, whatever it might be. That every area of my life, Lord, I want to be surrendered to you as a man of God, a woman of God, as a father, as a mother, in my marriage, in my relationships, in my job, in my business, whatever it might be. We don't want to hold anything back. But Lord, I'm submitted to you because you hold all things get together. You hold my life together. And that's one of the things that Job is going to realize when God shows up here in a few chapters in the whirlwind, that Job as he's going to show his majesty and his greatness. And if I can do these things and create the universe and measure the universe and the depths of the earth, I can take care of you, Job, that I am mighty and good. And Job is going to realize that. So here Elihu is, is speaking some truth, but he's going to bring it to a point to where he's going to, as I mentioned to you, blast away at, um, at Job. But first, verse 16 of chapter 34, if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked? Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor. For they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, and in the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away without a hand. Job, you wouldn't say such things concerning a king. You wouldn't say that a noble or a king is, is unjust in the way that you said God is. How dare you say such things about God? And as I've mentioned, as we know, that God is just. But here's the thing. God is also loving and compassionate. And Elihu and the other three in this book, I think, have really missed that point. Job, yes, was wrong when he was saying those things. But he was hurting when he was saying those things. And instead of blasting Job as they were doing and as Elihu's going to do and trying to come up with some sin which they couldn't find, they should have been comforting him and talking about the goodness of God. That is a hard thing to talk about when you're talking to somebody who's gone through real suffering, who's gone through real loss, to talk about the goodness of God, to talk about, you know, that the Lord is still here and the Lord has a plan. Isn't that hard when you're talking to a brother or sister or when you're talking to somebody who's gone through great loss? But we want to remind them of that and we gently want to remind them of that. And we want to be ones that, that we say, you know what, God does care and he does see and he does hear. See, Job, he was, as we talked about, he realized he was still holding on to the greatness of God, but he had forgotten about the goodness of God. And we can do that as well when we're hurting. And that's why we just want to, to bring comfort and, and the compassion of Christ to others as best as we know how when they are hurting. And again, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, I was with some um, first responders yesterday at a meeting. And um, in our county, we've had some terrible wrecks that... This last one on Sunday was horrendous. And we read about it, but I was in a meeting where the details were given on this debriefing, and the, the guys were really shaken up over it. And, and as I 
I hear it in, in the details and trying to minister to these guys. It's just like, how did this happen? How can something so horrendous happen? This family was one minute from being home. And you look at it and you think, why, Lord, and, and how? And, and you're trying to minister to them, and, and we don't know why, hows. We know that something very tragic happened to a family. But we want to pray for them, and we want to lift them up. And we want them to know that there is a God that cares. And there is a God that brings comfort somehow, some way. And that's a very difficult thing to be able to do. But we do want to hold on to that. And hold on to that hope that is in Christ. And knowing that in this world that there is loss and suffering, we all know that. But why something like this to this degree happens, we don't know. But we can fall back, as I've said to you over and over again, on the things that we do know. Please don't forget that truth and that precept. And bring in the goodness and the comfort of God to others in the way that the Lord leads you as you talk to them. Or just being there to just comfort them and, and, and giving words of compassion to them. So here, that's being lost in this conversation. And, and as Elihu in verse 21 continues, For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where their uh, workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty man without inquiry. He sets others in their place. Therefore he knows their works. He overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways. So that they cause the cry of the poor to come to him. For he hears the cry of the afflicted. And when he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him? Whether it is against a nation or a man alone. That the hypocrite should not reign lest the people be ensnared. So we see here that uh, Elihu, Job, you wouldn't say again such things. And, and continues with this theme of, uh, of God's perfect justice justice and his judgment describing them. God sees everything. Nothing is hid from him. Job, you need to understand that. You know, that the hypocrite will not reign as we read in verse 30. But we do know in God's greatness that he does see everything. And as Christians, we need to remember that. And I think Job realized that. And the reason I say that is because Job walked in the fear of God, didn't he? That's what God said, that he walks in the fear of God. And walking in the fear of God means that you're so awesome, God. You, I reverence you so much that you desire to, to please the Lord with your life. As I've said before, walking in the fear of God is not this unhealthy fear and being you know, so terrified that God's going to get you if you get out of line. But walking in the fear of God is I don't want to get out of line because I don't want to hurt you, Lord. I love you, and I am aware that you see everything. You know everything that I say, every thought that I think, uh, every action that I do. You know, and nothing is hidden from you. You see, we can hide certain things from our spouse. We can hide uh, them from our friends, from other family members, from you know people that are linked to us in our lives, but we cannot hide anything from God. And walking in the fear of God means that, Lord, I know that I am aware that you see everything, you know everything, and I don't want to do anything that's going to be displeasing to you or hurt you or against your word. That's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. So here is Elihu, you know, hey, God sees everything, nothing's hid from him, and then he's going to turn it on Job here. He, he's going to, you know, he, he's kind of, uh, building this up here. And then in verse 31, For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more? Teach me what uh, I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do, uh, I will do no more. Should he repay according to your terms? Just because you disavow it, you must choose and not I. Therefore, speak what you know. Hey, Elihu saying to Job, He's really making an appeal here that Job confess your sin and repent. 
Now, does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar to 29 chapters we just went through with Eliphaz and Bildad and so far. Hey, you must have sinned and you need to repent. And that's what he is saying here. Now, he's taken, uh, you know, this long-winded discourse so far to be able to come to this point. But he says to him, you know, speak what you know. Now, as he says that, I think that Elahab, in his pride, in his arrogance, is saying, okay, answer me, Job. Come on, speak what you know. I think he has a harsh tone here, you know, even standing close to Job. Come on, speak up. Speak what you know. He's given Job a chance, but Job doesn't speak. And I think that Elihu gets angry here because he lashes out at the end of the chapter. Verse 34, men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us. Uh, he multiplies his words uh, against God. Job speaks without knowledge. He has no wisdom. Job, you answer like a wicked man. And you speak proudly against God. And Job, you need more testing. And perhaps God will bring you to your senses. Now, not very comforting words, are they? Telling Job that you're wicked, that you don't have any wisdom, you don't have any knowledge, and that you're, you know, act proudly against God. In this charge here that, that he's bringing against Job, that God is unjust. But he's saying these hurtful words. You know what is amazing? I was just thinking about this uh, before I came down, just kind of looking at a few notes, thinking about tonight's teaching. But the three friends in Elihu here of Job, not once did they ever said, we don't understand. We don't understand why you're going through this. Not once. Not once did they ever say, we don't know. Do you realize that it's okay to say, I don't know? When people ask you a question. And I think it does more harm when we try to give an answer when we don't know what we're talking about. When we try to give an answer when there's no way that we can know that answer. And it's okay when something happens to say, I don't understand everything, but I do understand this. That God does love you and he desires to bring comfort to you. So Elihu is missing that element as well. He's a big know-it-all, just like the other three were, and he's going to continue to do that, just being harsh and uh, really hurting Job with his words. In chapter 35, now he's going to address the second complaint. Remember that Job said, what good is it to, to, you know, to serve God? And in chapter 35, as he answered and continued, do you think that this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? So in this second complaint, and I picture that Elihu is again pointing his finger at Job. Do you think this is right, Job? Do you think this is right? For you say that there's no profit in obeying God, that, that you should have sinned. There's no profit in obeying God. I should have just gone ahead and sinned. Now, Job did question, why should I serve God? You know, he was afraid of serving God, being completely submitted to God. But he, Elihu, Elihu that is, is not accurate in implying that Job said, that just go ahead and sin. It would benefit me if I did that. It doesn't really matter. Job didn't say that. Job, yes, he did say that why should I serve God? But he didn't say I'll just go ahead and go out and sin. You know, that'll benefit me or it doesn't really matter. And so Elihu's not being accurate in what Job is saying. Listen, if we're going to correct somebody, if we're going to rebuke somebody, we want to make sure that we're accurate in what they said. And oftentimes, we can miss that. Sometimes we can exaggerate what somebody says. Or we, you know, accuse them of something that is hearsay. We want to make sure that we take the time to talk with them and be accurate in the things that they're saying or the things that they're thinking, that we can minister to them in the correct way. 
but we don't just go blasting away and saying and implying things that aren't true. And that's what Elihu is doing here. And in verse 4 of chapter 35, I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you uh, uh, give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. So uh, he thinks that uh, this young man, that he's going to correct everyone. Hey, God is higher, greater than man. He's beyond man. Uh, we've seen that Job and his three friends already discussed that, didn't they? they? They know that. So again, Job never doubted the greatness of God, but he is doubting the goodness of God. And I think that Elihu thought that Job had lost his fear of God. Uh, in, in verse 7, if you are righteous, what do you give him? In other words, there's nothing that a man can do to benefit God. That's what Elihu is saying. You know, God doesn't need us, you and me. He doesn't need us. But he loves us, and he wants to use us, and he wants us to be used for his purposes. He entrusts us the gospel to give to others. He entrusts to us to be able to minister to others and to be a testimony of the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. And we know that the scripture says that we were created for his good pleasures. And ladies, you heard about that in the ladies' conference so well as the theme that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has a plan for you and for me. And he has prepared those. We are his workmanship. And as, as it was told, that, that word is that we are his poem created in Christ Jesus for good works. You are a poem. And a poem is something of beauty, something to bless, something to, to as you read, it's like, oh, that, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. Uh, artwork is the same way. It kind of has the same idea that the Lord desires to use you to be something of beauty in this life for his purposes and that he promises that he'll complete that work that he has begun in is Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. And I love that because, Lord, I know you don't need me, that you do want to use me, though. I don't know why, but I rejoice in it and you love me and you want me to be a testimony of you and to bring glory and honor to you to be a testimony to reality of, of you in my life and that you are real. And oftentimes that's done through trials, isn't it? Oftentimes that's done through adversity. And that's why in the scriptures that we're told to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Paul writing to the Corinthian believers talking about the, the afflictions that we go through and the beauty that comes out of it from you know, God working through us, the maturity, the bringing us to completeness, as James says, as we go through trials. God wants to work, and it's a thing of beauty that, that we will be able to be a testimony of, that others can read a poem of God's faithfulness and goodness. It's kind of like I've used this illustration before, but um, in the summertime, uh, when you, a lot of us, we've been up the Rocky Mountain National Park and you go over Trail Ridge and when you get up by Timberline, uh, as you get by the Alpine, there's the bristlecone pines that are there and up there, because the winds you know, blow so hard and the snow is so deep for most of the year and the weather is very adverse that those trees are very gnarly, aren't they? They're all twisted up, they're all bent over, they're all sideways and stuff because of the adversity, and people go up there and they, you know, that do art and they'll draw those pictures, you know, those trees, those bristlecone pines. There's a beauty in there, isn't it? Or they'll take photographs of it and, and people stop and they look at it and it's because of the winds of blowing on them in the snow and the harsh weather. Well, the same thing can happen in our lives as the winds of adversity blow on us as harsh, difficult circumstances happen to us. 
that as we turn to the Lord and trust in Him and we let Him work in our lives, that there's a thing of beauty that He wants to do through our lives and all that. And I know that it isn't easy and it can be very difficult. But Lord wants to say to us that I'm still with you and I'm working and you are a poem. You're a piece of artwork that people are going to see my reality, my goodness, and my glory that's going to come through you as they see that you're trusting in me and I'm working. And how he works is different for everybody in every situation. But we are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And to know not only the greatness of God, but always remember the goodness of God as well. That if we can trust him with our salvation as he's given us the very best in Jesus Christ who went to the cross for you and for me and has given us a living hope that we can trust him with our lives and know that, that this life that we have opportunity to declare his truthfulness and his goodness to others even through the adversities that we go through. So here is Elihu. He, he's saying all these things. He continues as we read in, in um, verse 9 of chapter um, 35. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the almighty regard it. Although you say you do not um, see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. In verse 15, and now because he is not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. Real nice guy, isn't he? You shouldn't expect God to respond to you, Job. You know, man doesn't cry out to God unless there's trouble and God knows that they're insincere and, and so God doesn't answer them. So in other words, Job, you're insincere and, and God doesn't answer the proud. Yeah, verse 13, empty talk. Because he has not spoken in his anger. How hurtful that must have been to Job because he's implying God is angry with you, Job. I hope that when we talk to somebody, that we don't let them leave, you know, with them thinking, God is so angry at me. Yes, he's not pleased if there's sin and there needs to be correction and rebuke. I understand that. But sometimes that I've talked to people and, and, you know, they just blast away and it's like, what was that all about? God must be angry at me or something, so upset with me. And that's what Elihu is doing here. To a man, Job, who walked upright, blameless, feared God and shunned evil. So he's given that implication again, the wrong implication. You know, if you, know, you are punished because you deserved it. You couldn't open your own mouth in vain, you know. You don't see him, but he sees you, Job, and he's upset with you is the implication very clearly that he's given here. And he continues here as he proclaims God's goodness, but then he, and Elihu proclaims God's majesty as well, but then he's going to again be very harsh towards Job. Elihu in chapter 36 proceeded and said, bear with me a little and I will show you that the, there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. So he, he elevates himself as a spokesman for God. And I think that Elihu, what is, is interesting is that we're going to see at the end of the book that God's going to rebuke Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far, but he doesn't say anything concerning, Eli, uh, concerning Elihu here. Why? I don't know. But I think that perhaps that as he claims to be a spokesman for God, he did say in chapter 32, I'm compelled by God to say these things. But was he self-appointed? Uh, I can't say that for sure, but I can just encourage us that if we are going to minister to somebody, that make sure that we're not self-appointed to be saying things because 
this is my chance to, to really let them have it or, or go at it or, or show them how smart I am. We want to make sure that we're being compelled by the Spirit to go talk to somebody. And I think that these guys are getting a little bit frustrated, a bit restless, because here in verse 2 he says, bear with me a little bit. I'll show you. Kind of like, you know, don't be shaking your heads. You know, I'm going to show you. I'll prove it to you. I'll convince you. He's boasting, and, and I get my knowledge from afar from God. And verse 4, one who is perfect in knowledge. Now, some have suggested he's talking about himself, but I honestly think that, you know, that he's making reference to God. God is the only one with perfect knowledge, but I'm speaking for, you know, God. So what I'm saying is perfect knowledge to you. But verse 5, we see that he continues, Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings. For he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they should turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. Now, Elihu is saying something that's no different than what the other three were saying. If you do good, then God's going to bless you. If you are disobedient, then you will perish. You're going to perish by the sword and without knowledge, verse 12. But notice in verse 11, if they serve and obey and in here, um, then they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. And we know, as we have discussed quite extensively, that as you obey and you serve God, it doesn't mean that you are going to be exempt from trials or suffering at all, does it? So Elihu here is saying something no different than what the other three were saying. And adversity has happened to Job. And verse 13, but the hypocrite in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among perverted persons. And he delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. So the hypocrite has a sad life. And I'm just wondering if Job's thinking, okay, now you're calling me a hypocrite. It's like Elihu is saying, you have a bleak future, Job, unless you come out and confess and repent. In verse 16, indeed, you have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. And what is set on your table would be full of riches. But you are filled with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Real nice guy, isn't he? Because there is wrath. Beware lest he take you away with one blow. He's just going to like punch you out, Job. One blow, bam. He's going to take you out. For a large ransom would not help you avoid it. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed, do not turn to iniquity. So, you know, you're treading on dangerous ground, and you better confess your sin and get right with God. Take heed, Job, for you have chosen this. Verse 21. And it all can be better if you just repent and turn back to God. Now, this was the kind of counsel that really hurt Job, wasn't it? By his other three friends and caused them to say that they were miserable counselors. And to me, I think Elihu would fit into that category. So, verse 22, Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? As he talks about the goodness of God, the majesty of God. You know, who teaches like him? No one teaches like God. The Bible in other places, who has been his counselor? I think the problem sometimes is me, that I've been his counselor, rather than taking the counsel from the one who is truth, the one who is the teacher, the one who teaches us. And then in verse 24, remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. Here's the hardest thing to do when we're going through a trial or difficulties or something really weighing on our minds is to magnify the Lord. And that's why I commend you guys for being here because I'm sure that, that some of you come in and there are some things that weigh on your mind or there are hurts that are in your heart. 
and you come and we have an opportunity to magnify the Lord. And it's important that we do that. I know, you know, even for me, we can get so, you know, out of focus or so distracted that we end up, you know, lifting up and magnifying the problem, not to where, you know, we just always focus on it, is what I'm saying, rather than we need to magnify and exalt the Lord and keep our focus on Him. And for allow Him to just continue to minister to us His comfort that He wants to. We need to remember the work that He's done in saving us and forgiving us and the living hope that we have through Jesus Christ. In verse 26, Behold, God is great, and He is. We do not know Him, nor can the number of His years be discovered. For He draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the midst, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? Look, he scatters his light upon it and covers the depths of the sea. And by these he judges the peoples and gives food in abundance. And he covers his hands with lightnings and commands it to strike. His thunder declares it, the cattle also concerning the rising storm. So I wonder in these words here if there isn't a storm that's approaching. And Elihu sees it and he starts, you know, kind of speaking about, you know, the unsearchable greatness of God. He, his thunder declares it. It reminds me of the greatness of God. Uh, uh, remember in Exodus chapter 19 when the children of Israel came to the mountain of God after they left Egypt. And there the mountain of God shook. And there was thunderings and there was lightnings. And I think it was divine thundering and lightning. We live in a part of the country where we get some pretty neat thunderstorms. And I don't know about you, but I like to watch thunderstorms. I'm very, you know, very much intrigued by them. And Sue gets frustrated at me because I'm in my backyard, you know, looking around. And she's like, get in here before you get hit with lightning or, you know, whatever, you know, is going on. Because I just love to watch lightning storms. And, and, um, and I can watch them for hours. It just fascinates me. And I think that there's, you know, this lightning storm because God is going to now speak in a few chapters in a whirlwind. And I think that he's beginning to make his way over to where these guys are at. God is great and God is awesome. But tonight, remember this, that God is good and he loves you. And we can trust him with our lives and trust him with the, the difficulties or circumstances that you might find yourself in. Whatever your needs are, whatever your hurts are, that, Lord, you love me and you are great and awesome. And, Lord, you proved your love for me as you went to Calvary's cross, your son, that you've given me life. And, Lord, that I know that your word declares that you want me to be a poem a work of art, an instrument, a, a vessel of honor for you that you're working in my life. So, Lord, I just continue to let you hold me together because you hold every breath that I take in your hand. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these words, and we thank you for this book, Job, that, again, that we can gain from and learn from. And, and um, adversity is a very hard thing. Suffering, difficulties. But Lord, I pray that as we go through it, whatever to what degree, that you are the God who comforts us in all our tribulations, as Second Corinthians says. You are the God of comfort to come and to strengthen, to hold up our heads, to Lord, to comfort our hearts. Lord, to work in our lives to where, Lord, you want your glory to be declared. And even through the difficulties, a thing of beauty that you want to make, a vessel of honor. So, Father, we may not understand it completely, but your word declares it. That we don't go through trials and difficulties just so you can tear us down and make us bitter. But Lord, as we just trust in you and rest in your love, that you want to make us better and to build us up. And to be a wonderful testimony of your reality. 
And Lord, I pray for tonight for every anyone here that, first of all, that as we know that you're preeminent over everything except for the one who's not surrendered their heart to you. And I just want to pray if there's anybody listening on live stream or that might be here listening to this message that you've never done that, that Jesus loves you so much he went to the cross for you. That you might be forgiven of sin and come into relationship with the Father and have the hope of heaven. It comes by faith in Jesus, realizing that you're a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus. That's why he went to the cross to die for your sins. And he did it because of his love for you. And if you're here tonight and you've never done that, religion is not going to save you. It's relationship and confessing that you need Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And you pray where you are as you humble your heart before him. As you realize you need Jesus for salvation. Coming in faith, you cry out to him. And if you sincerely in your heart believe in him, he will not reject you. You pray, Jesus, I am a sinner. I confess that, and I believe you died for my sins. You died on Calvary's cross for me. Forgive me and be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you're alive. I've heard this message because you brought me here. You, you, you enabled me and helped me to, to understand the gospel, and I receive it. And I open up my heart to you and surrender my life to you fully. And thank you for hearing my prayer. And Father, I also pray for the one who tonight, that as we face things that we don't understand, that Lord, help us to stay in that place of Lord, your love and your compassion and comfort. That you would strengthen the one who needs strength tonight that you'd bring joy to the one who has great sorrow. Lord, that you would bring a peace that passes understanding. And Lord, that you would give direction to the one who needs direction. And Lord, perhaps the one who's been hurt, that you bring healing, that you bring forgiveness. Lord, do that work in our life. There's all kinds of things that can happen that cause hurt and pain. Loss, betrayal, distrust, disappointment, whatever it might be. And Lord, though, though we may go through tremendous and hurtful things, we trust in you. For you the work and provide and the comfort. So Lord, I pray that you give us the strength to day by day and moment by moment to magnify you to rest in your love. Take everyone home safely tonight. Bless the rest of our week, Lord. May we just sense your presence in a very real way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, God is good. Would you please stand? I'll be here to pray with anybody that needs prayer.